I asked him when I was four if I could make a ring. And I made the whole thing myself. I remember him holding the blowtorch behind me so that I didn't set fire to the house. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. If you'd like to turn your passion for arts, crafts, jewellery, or handmade goods into a real business, then this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast is for you. Harriet Kelsall made her first piece of jewellery when she was just four years old with her father's help. Now she runs Harriet Kelsall Jewellery, which has over 40 staff. Harriet is also author of the book, The Creative's Guide to Starting a Business, How to Turn Your Talent into a Career, which recently won an award in the Business Book Awards 2019. Harriet has some really fascinating things to say about what really makes a difference between a creative business that takes off and one that flounders. And she explains how it's not simply about your talent or the amount of effort you put into marketing. There are lots of important lessons here about how to run any business successfully and how to manage that tricky balance between art and commerce. Welcome, Harriet. Thanks so much for making the time to do this. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So you run Harriet Council Jewellery, which was actually founded back in 1998, over 20 years ago, and you've won over 20 awards. You started your journey into jewellery at a really young age. Do you want to tell me what happened when you were... Um, your father was a jeweller, was he? And yeah, he was actually a, a doctor, an NHS doctor. Oh. Um, but he was also a really talented jeweller, which is a bit mm. of a strange combination when you think about it. Um, but uh, he was very good at making jewellery and he used to make it professionally in that he sold it to to people. Um, and he used to, um, I used to sort of come home from school and find my teachers at the kitchen table talking about their wedding rings with him because he used to sort of help pay the school fees by um, by selling jewellery. So so I, I was always really interested in what he was doing when he came home late at night and sat on his bench for a couple of hours. And I would sit there at a very young age and, and be completely transfixed by watching the flames and the hot metal and everything. And uh, I, I asked him when I was four if I could make a ring. And he said, yes, you can make a ring, but what? it's not sculpture. You know, this is design. So what you need to do is you need to draw exactly what you're going to make and then we'll make what you draw. And so I did that. I came up with all these drawings and I, I, I made this uh, drawing of a, a ring with a huge purple stone with a rabbit on one side and a cat on the other, obviously. Um, and um, the stone was really high from, from my drawing. And he said, right, well, we'll make exactly what you've drawn because that's what you've drawn. And so um, 
he helped me work out how to do it. And, and I made the whole thing myself. I remember him holding the blowtorch behind me so that I didn't set fire to the house, which was probably yeah. quite sensible. Um, and, uh, and the only part he did was I drew the, the rabbit on one side and the cat on the other. And, uh, and then he engraved those in because that was a bit tricky. But all the rest of it, all the soaring and everything I did, I, I still wear it now. I haven't got it on today, actually, but I still no. wear it now. So, yes, that was, um, yeah, it, 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 it was sort of open at the back. Um, uh, so I'll have to send you a photo of it. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I still wear it today. And it's a great, great big amethyst on, on the ring. And so I was completely hooked. And I loved the whole process of actually designing it. And then the, the, the sort of that first time of mm. actually making exactly what I'd drawn was, was really captivating and, and taught mm. me so much about, about that. And then, you know, I'd sit there at his bench learning from him and he'd be tired because he'd just come back from a really long day as a doctor. And then he'd, he'd drop things and I'd, I'd sort of say, oh, that's the cubic zircon and that's the diamond and pick them up and pass them to him. So I learned about gemstones at a very early age as well. Wow. Oh, that's brilliant. And I love the story that he, but he made exactly what you drew. So, so that means that he didn't kind of, you know, he didn't change it and try to, to round off the edges to make it suit, you know, what would be the style. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was great like that. And, um, and luckily I had, I'd seen a particular gemstone that he had that I liked. It was a great, great big cabochon cut, which is the smooth domed amethyst. So I'd sort of based my drawing around that, which, um, I'm not sure what he would have done if I'd based it around something he didn't have. Uh, but, uh, yes, that was good. I mean, I mean actually later on, I think, my sister and I had a very early entrepreneurial spark because we made some twisted nine carat, nine carat gold wire earrings, like little sleepers um, that, 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 that just clipped onto your ears and made it look as though you had pierced ears when, when you didn't. I think I was about eight and my sister was four years older. And we, we took them to school and we would sell them to our friends for a pound a pair. But we got into terrible trouble because um, the, <laughs> the parents of of our school friends were, were absolutely freaking out when they their, their little uh, darlings went home and they assumed their, their ears had been pierced with a compass behind the bike sheds but, yeah. uh, but actually they hadn't they were just they were just clipped on but they were so realistic yeah we got quite told off at school and um and so yes that that quickly extinguished that uh, early entrepreneurial spark for a couple of years <laughs> but that's good eh? well good entrepreneurial spirit selling them for a pound i love that <laughs> so now tell us that what harriet kelso jewelry is like today because it's mm. it's very different you've got quite a few staff haven't you yeah we're a team of 40 all together wow. um and we specialize in bespoke jewelry so um that we, we sort of started a wave when when i started the company of um of, of actually bringing bespoke jewelry to the high street which hadn't really been done before you know if you wanted something made you either had to have buckets of money um, and you know, go to Bond Street, or you you might know a bloke with a workbench. You might do something a bit like what you asked, but there wasn't any actual design element to it. So, so that's what I I sort of changed. Um, and uh, and so yeah, we now have three studios. Our sort of main jewelry centre where we make the jewelry is in North Hertfordshire, fairly near Baldock in the countryside, and it's a big converted barn um, where there's a we have a coffee shop so people can have a coffee and watch the jewellers through a glass walled room where where they make the jewelry mm. um and there's an educational area we do sort of kids jewelry making events and things like that there as well um and obviously just a showroom and shops you can just come and, and and look and people sit down with the designers on a one-to-one basis and um and then you know talk about their ideas and then we, we we make something that's perfect for them and then we also have a a much two other much smaller design studios one's in 
central Cambridge and the other one is in North London in Primrose Hill. Mm. Um, so, um, sorry, did you just hear that ding? Um, no, what is it? Oh, right. Oh, sorry. It was something almost popping up on my computer. Um, so, so yeah, sorry. We, um, so we also have two other much smaller, but beautiful studios. Mm. One's in Cambridge, uh, in the center there. And one is in North London in Primrose Hill. Mm. And there we don't actually make any jewellery, but they're, they're, they're both staffed entirely by designers. We, we don't really believe in sales staff. We much prefer designers to interact mm. directly with people. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, three three bases altogether. Um, the, the, the London one's the newest. We only opened it last year, just, just a year ago. So, um, so that's been, been an exciting adventure. I think I was reading somewhere on your site. Was there a deliberate choice about Primrose Hill rather than trying to be near Bond Street or somewhere like that? Yes, exactly. We we wanted to be somewhere where it was sort of a little bit romantic, a sort of romantic destination um, where people could make a day of it. And and also um, an area where there are specialists and where there's a bit of a community of of its own, if you like, um, and I felt it was funny. We looked all over London. We spent ages looking around all the different areas. Um, and actually, I used to live in Primrose Hill years ago, and weirdly didn't think of it for ages. And then suddenly, someone said, "What about Primrose Hill?" And I sort of thought, "Oh, that's an interesting idea." Um, so went went along and, and thought, "This is this is perfect," because there were actually quite a lot of very good specialist businesses there on Regent's Park Road near where we are. A great bookshop, you know, great community. You can have a romantic picnic in the park. Lots of very famous films have been shot there. Yeah. Um, lots of Hugh Grant films and things like that. So it's, it's sort of yeah. known as a romantic destination anyway. So it really fits. Um, so, yeah, we've been really happy with the, with the location. That's really clever. And that, it's, it's, a, it's just one thing, you know, it's just a, such, a, such a seemingly small thing, the location of your shop. But it's so important because I was in that area, um, uh, I think it might have been last summer, actually. And we had a picnic on the... Uh, in the park there and then walked wow. down to this high street that felt like it was from a time decades ago that you might yeah. shoot a Richard Curtis film in like yes, <laughs> yes it is and lovely and there's there's a different atmosphere yeah. there mm, mm. so when you drive there or you you, you get there and, and you turn up you feel like you're already starting to unfold a story about what you're doing which is often creating a unique engagement ring for instance is that yeah. is that one of the more common things that you do Yes, we do lots of engagement rings. That's often the first thing that people do with us and then they, they get hooked. But actually, having said that, one, one thing that we're also doing a lot of is what I like to call glamorous recycling, which is people bring along jewellery that they've inherited or that they've got at the back of their jewellery box and they're not wearing anymore. Um, and we melt up the metal, the gold or the platinum or whatever it is and, and potentially repolish the gemstones if they need it and design and make something completely new for them which is just wonderful and it's great to take a whole load of material um and and make it into something something completely fresh that that's really right for the individual um yeah. and actually that's i feel like that's one of the wonderful things about jewelry materials is that they they're going to outlive us the metal and the mm-hmm. diamonds they're already you know, billions of years old and um and for us ethics has always been a really strong driver we've done a lot in the industry around ethics like launching fair trade golden um we've, we've done a lot in that area and so recycling to me is is a natural thing that these people do realize you can do with jewelry um but it's quite fun to, to reuse those materials rather than yeah. buying them afresh mm. i was going to ask about the, the ethical stance that you've taken because there's, there's um you know it, it, 
but there's a lot of work you're doing in this area. And you said you, you launched Fair Trade Gold? Yes, that's right. Yeah, in 2011. So um, me and a few other jewellers uh, had been pushing using this, what we were calling fairly traded gold at the time, which was using the principles of fair trade gold. Um, but the Fair Trade Foundation hadn't got involved and done all of the paperwork yet. And a friend of mine, Greg Valerio, was really pushing it forward with the Fair Trade Foundation. Um, and when I met him, because he wasn't a friend yet, <laughs> he became a friend, um, he's, he found out that I was using this gold and, and asked me to, to help and, and you know, bring others along. Um, and I, I got involved helping the Fair Trade Foundation with their route to bespoke jewellers and how, how that would work for a company like ours and how the sort of licensing paperwork trail had to work in that area. Mm. Um, and then we were one of the first 20 jewellers to launch Fair Trade Gold worldwide, mm. um, which was really exciting. And then we, we also became the first jeweller in the world to be certified by the Responsible Jewellery Council and also licensed to sell fair trade gold so yeah we've been been driving at responsibility from all different different angles so that means that because you know there have been a a number of scandals around you know diamonds and so on but also precious metals as well as uh you know materials for jewelry yeah about the people who actually source them and working in the mines or wherever it might be um working under terrible conditions so fair trade gold ensures that Presumably, people who are involved in the sourcing of the gold actually get a fair wage. Is that the idea? That's the, that's the first principle that they get a fair wage, but also they get something extra, which is very important for people to look out for the fair trade logo than, rather than some of these other labels. Mm-hmm. Because what the fair trade logo means, whatever product it's on, is not only do people get a fair price, but they also get something called a premium which is uh, an, an extra load of money that they get to, to spend on their communities as they see fit. So, for example, some communities decide they need a maternity hospital or, or the gold community in Peru that we were working with decided that they, they needed to convert their school, which was basically a shack, into a much better environment. And they, they bought a few computers for the older kids and some educational toys for the younger kids, which was a complete, you know, complete change to what they were doing. It's helped them enormously. Um, so yeah, so so that's very important um, behind the fair trade label as well. And also, they do things like educate the workers about health and safety, about you know women's rights in the in the workplace, mm. um, and all sorts of other other issues um, surrounding you know whether it be mining or whether it be farming, whatever whatever it is that the product is. So yeah, so it's a really great set of values that they have. It's an important yeah. label. Mm. Well, that, no, that's great to hear. And part of the reason I want to speak to you is because you've written this great book, which is The Creative's Guide to Starting a Business, How to Turn Your Talent into a Business. Is that right? Yes, and that's right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for saying it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. And I was on the, you, you submitted it for, or somebody submitted it for the, um, the Business Book Awards 2019. Yes. And I was on the judging panel again this year. And I uh, was very keen for you to win in that category of startup inspiration because I felt like you've written a really um a, a book that was was inspiring but also has some really practical advice and that's my favorite mix it's like you want to read a book that you feel excited when you read it because and part of that came through the lovely case studies you've got in there people in lots of different forms of of um arts crafts jewelry even uh, perfumes mm-hmm. and um but you've also got like some practical advice about what you do as well it was some of that comes from yeah. the case studies but yeah. i think the thing that really interests me is that there are so many people who want to make a living that, that i come across 
want to make a living from their art, their craft, uh, from jewelry, from the things that are handmade, mm. most of them, in my experience, don't succeed. Mm. So what I'm wondering is, what's the difference between those people who have some ability and have some talent and really do push at it, who don't make it, and yeah. those people like you who get to the point where you've got 40 staff and these lovely premises and, uh, and, the, and the shop fronts and everything else that you're doing and, you, and your principles are written throughout it, you know, about um, the things that you believe in. So what is, I mean, is hard work simply the answer? Is there something else? Um, yeah, there's, there's a few things. I mean, the reason I wrote the book in the first place was because I'd been mentoring various creative businesses from all different creative disciplines, you know, potters and, you know, sculptors and artists and handbag makers and all sorts of um, different different areas. And I'd noticed that there were so many common threads between the things they needed help with in order to succeed and also the things that they found didn't work for them, you know, regardless of what they were doing. Um, so I brought a lot of that together. And there are a few things um, that, that really separates a successful entrepreneur, if you if you like. I mean, I, I, I never set out to be an entrepreneur. And, and, and I think what happens is creative people, they make something beautiful and they want to make their living out of doing that. And so they have to start a business, but they haven't got you know, MBAs and business degrees or anything like that. They're just really good at being a great potter or a jeweler or whatever. Um, and they find that they have, to, they have to build a business based on what they can grasp together and grapple a, a, from, you know, the world and find out well, what, what do you do to do this thing called starting a business? And so it's it's a very different mindset from a from a, somebody who, who knows they want to start a, a dot-com business and, that you know, they have a completely different mindset um so i think if i was really oversimplifying it i would say that what what uh, separates a successful creative startup from a less successful one is that the successful startup will keep trying and keep doing everything to get their offering right and keep changing what they're doing until it works whereas the less successful ones think that they're going to just make their pots and they're going to put them on Etsy because that's what everybody does and they'll make a living and then when they don't because they're putting their pots on an extremely crowded marketplace they they think oh well that that obviously I'm obviously not good enough or it doesn't work when actually they're not really trying to solve the real problem there right. um so so in the book I talk a lot about defining you know, what success is, first of all, and understanding what, what you want to feel successful as a creative individual. And then I talk about what I call people's big idea, which is, you know, if you're an amazing ceramicist and you just do what all the other amazing ceramicists do, you're unlikely to really find something that is going to give you that difference that you need to start something really great. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's thinking about what you can do to form your big idea you know you're going to combine it with um something else that you that hasn't been connected with it before you know you're going to combine your love of pottery with um airplanes or maybe not airplanes but you know mm -hmm. so, something that's not not been done before or you're going to specialize in a completely new way which is of course what i did when i brought bespoke jewelry to the high street mm -hmm. um or you're going to look at uh, ethics in in a completely new way um uh, that's going to sort of involve what you're doing um there's so many different ways of doing that. There's lots of examples, as, as you say, in the case studies. And so it's really defining. I, I think a really successful creative needs not only 
a great creative offering, a great creative product, if you like. But they also, they need that to be different and new in some way. And then they also need often to use their creativity and their approach to the market where it finds some completely new way of, of linking it to the market. And so I guess the book is a lot about, it. you're right, it's got lots of very practical tips, like how do I price it? But actually, it's a lot about changing your mindset and using your creativity in a, in a slightly broader way. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. So it's a combination of, of doing the work and, and the things that you're passionate about, but in a way where you find some sort of theme or idea or something that makes it coherent, but also where that idea lands well with the market. Because you could you could take your work, put some spin on it, or you know, find some niche or, or something new, and then the market just goes, Well, we don't want that anyway. Yeah. So it's the, yeah. It, that sounds like it's really important. And I think that sometimes I think people can get very stuck in the ways. And I think there is a, a difference between being a pure artist and just wanting to express yourself. I've lost count of the number of creatives I've spoken to who, who come and they say things like, well, I've done this amazing collection of jewellery based on dead rats. And yeah. so now I understand. And honestly, there have been many based on actually dead rats. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> and um, and they, say, they say to me, you know, now I've got this amazing collection. I do understand that what I need to do is learn about marketing so that I know how to market it. Mm. And my thinking is entirely the wrong way around. And I, and I sort of say to them, you know, do you really think people are going to want to wear dead rat jewel. I mean, there may be, there may be some people that want to wear it, but I don't know them. And so really, you know, you need to think about your market first, you know, before you, you it, it's not, you're not an artist where it's about, it's got to be dead rats. That's all that's, I've got to do it. Yeah. You're a designer. So design for your market, look at, at, at who you, who they are and who the people are that you want to design for that you think you, you can, you can inspire and, and help enjoy your jewelry um, and then design something that they're going to want. Um, and that, then you'll find that you almost don't need to market it because they already want it. You know, it's, um, it, it's uh, sometimes there is a big, a big gap between what people think it's going to be like. People often say things like, well, you know, now I've got my jewelry. I just need to in, start a website and then people will buy it. And they don't really yeah. link up with, with the fact that, that you, you've got to find people who, how you have to point them to your website you know that's like saying well i've got a shop yeah. in you know outer mongolia and and so now people are buying my buy my jewelry <laughs> whereas actually you, know, you need to, to move it to a high street location and know, know how to do that just to clarify then when you say dead rat jewelry it's a jewelry that actually looks like dead rats <laughs> it actually looks like dead rats i've seen i think i've seen something like eight different collections of dead rat inspired jewelry of one one shape or form over the last few years and so, for example, one of them was sort of silver dead rats and dead rabbits with bright red shotgun wounds in them with, with enamel that would sort of hang off a, hang off a necklace. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't know about you, John, but I don't know anybody that would actually necessarily want to wear that. Um, so I think sometimes, you know, people get very confused about, about what they're doing, actually. Um, others I, bet those others people, I bet those eight people all thought they'd done the most original thing in the world as well. Exactly. They? They, they, and, and they were so surprised when I said, oh, another set of, another set yeah. of jewelry. But, but yes, I, I think it's, um, and, and some people just make very pretty jewelry, but it just looks like everybody else's. You know, it's nothing new. Um, yeah. And they, they sort of think they're going to you know, really make their living out of, out of doing that. And you really, you know, it's only really the exceptionally talented or usually the, the very well connected mm. that manage to do that. 
Um, and actually what you need is to, to approach the market with something completely fresh that it actually wants or combine some different ideas yeah. and, and make something new. Um, and, yes, I, I, I found I was saying the same things to so many people that yeah. I decided to write the book. Mm. No, that's a, that's a good point. And I think this really interests me because one of the consistent themes of my work and of, of this, uh, the Ideas Lab podcast is finding product market fit. So this is a term from the startup world. How can you take your creative idea and um, somehow make it fit into a problem that the market has or a desire mm. that the market has? So you're, it, there's a sort of magic that happens between the things you want to do and the world wants. And exactly. how do you do it in a way where you still feel satisfied if you've got a creative urge, but also mm. that people are going to buy it? And what you're saying is there's a certain arrogance, I think, to saying, I've done this work. In my opinion, it's brilliant. The world mm. should now queue up to buy it. And yes. if they want to, they're just not going to. Yes, yes. And, and, and people often really, really believe that the only thing they're getting wrong is their marketing, that people yeah. don't want what they're selling. And they, they can either not really see how similar it is to other offerings yeah. or that it's not actually what their market want because they, they often haven't really thought about their market at all. And mm. the first the first key to, as you say, solving that issue that you just described is yeah. actually, in my opinion, as a creative, really visualizing who your market are and think about, well, what, you know, what do they want? Um, and if it's not dead rat jewelry, what am I going to love creating that's also really fresh and new mm. that, that they're going to want to wear? And, and it's, it's linking those two things together that people often really miss. Um, yeah. And they get confused between, as you say, the difference between an artist who's expressing something very pure, but in a way that mm. is often quite difficult to, it's not, it's not a commercial way. Um, with um, with a designer where they, they actually need to, 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 to answer a design brief. And that design brief has to include the fact that it needs to be something that people want. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And then once you've found this and, and it feels like, okay, you've got some traction and people are showing an interest and go, oh, wow, I want that. I mean, I guess one of the tests is initially, if people see you wearing it and go, wow, where is that from? I really like that. Mm. You say, mm. well, yeah, I made it. That's kind of gets you over the that that's the that's the first these are the kind of signals you get at the early stages. So if yeah. you've got something good, then um, what? How do people then market work that is good? Because everyone, I, I think people are thinking too early. How, how do I get more website visitors? Or how do mm -hmm. I get more Instagram followers? But once you have got over that hurdle and you've definitely got something, you know, that people are buying. Mm -hmm. um, people who don't know you are buying. What, what are the channels now? Is it all about Instagram for things like jewellery and arts and crafts and so on? I think there's always a new channel that, that I might not even know about yet. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily a technological channel. Um, I, think, I think, first of all, though, I just want to say that, you know, you, you talked about once you've got something that everybody wants mm. and they want to buy it. I think the first thing to really master there before you go any further is your pricing. Because mm. another thing that I find is a really common theme is that people have an unsustainable pricing structure. So because they're doing it as a hobby or as a sideline and they're trying to build their business, they think that they're just going to take the materials and double them and then that's their selling price. And so, you know, if, if you say, oh, I love that ring and you say, oh, great, well, I, I made it. Um, and you say, oh, great, how much is it? And I say, well, it's actually 10 pounds. You say, great, I'd love that. You know, that's brilliant. But if you actually have to price it like a business, it's probably going to, to need to be 60 pounds because mm -hmm. you couldn't possibly afford all of your other 
business expenses and so on and your own wages out of £10. Mm. Um, so, you know, and it may be that if I said, oh, it's £60, you might say, oh, oh, that's lovely, but yeah, I won't buy it. And so sometimes people think they've got the product right because their pricing is actually wrong. Um, and that once they think through their pricing properly, that they haven't got found the market gap that they think they've found. Um, yeah. So I think the first thing is to make sure people get that right. And then when when they're confident they've got that right, then I think the next step there is looking at all sorts of different channels. So when I talked about visualizing your customer, that's not only important for when you're thinking of your offering. It's also it's also then figuring out, well, how do I reach that customer? What do they do? You know, do they go to the theater? Do they go to cafes, restaurants? Do they do they fly on planes? You know, how is it that I can reach them? What is it that brings them together as a group of people that I can somehow figure out a new and innovative way of tapping my product into them? So, so for example, you know, if they if they go to a particular type of restaurant, can I go to that restaurant mm. and ask them if I can lend them, you know, for a sort of maybe for an event or or maybe maybe permanently lend them twenty of my amazingly upholstered chairs. Um, so that people can see them, you know, my, my potential customers can see them and love them and maybe even social network about them and actually start to start to put my things in front of these potential customers in a completely new way. So rather than thinking, oh, well, I'll just sell them to another craft shop because that's what everybody does. Yeah. The problem there is that's what everybody does. So there's always a new way. Um, and yes, of course, you know, you can use the more traditional channels now with different social networks, but for me, there's always a new way of, of getting in front of those customers and building that base in an innovative way that isn't just, well, I'll just keep shouting about it on in the ways that everybody's shouting about everything. People can't hear it. You know, it's, it's too, there's yeah. too much shout going on. Um, you've got to find a new way to really, to really get in front of your customers in, in a way that then maybe will surprise them or, or maybe we'll, um, mm. yeah, we'll, we'll just sort of just, just, make make them want what you're putting in front of them if, if your product's really great no that's good that, that's so interesting so it's so different from oh well how do i get more instagram followers it's it's mm. a lot deeper and a, and a lot smarter than that so i, mm. I thoroughly recommend the book the creative's guide to starting a business because i think you illustrate that really nicely and where um, where is harriet kelso jewelry going next or where are you going next you do a number of other things as well yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very embroiled at the moment in, um, I have a few voluntary roles. So I'm the, currently the chair of the National Association of Jewellers, mm. um, and a non-executive director on a few other uh, boards, which is great because I like bringing people together and helping the industry. So that's taking up a lot of my time. Um, but yeah, as a business, we've, um, we've got a big, a big, uh, just launched a new strategic plan, uh, about, two weeks ago in fact um and so yeah we have lots of new things we i think when you when you have a successful business of any kind you need to keep reinventing yourself you need to keep looking around the next corner and mm. keep finding new ways to please your customers and that's exactly what we're we're doing at the moment and we've got uh, 36 projects from this plan that we're going to be doing as a team so yeah it's all, all lots of exciting progress to come great well i look forward to seeing what happens next this has been really interesting uh, thank you very much harriet Thank you very much, John. Nice to speak to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes 
along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast.